Welcome to the Brain Health Revolution podcast with your hosts, Aisha and Dean Sherzai. Friends, you'll really enjoy this episode. We had the great pleasure of sitting down with Dr. David Katz for the second time on our podcast. He is a physician scientist, an award-winning author of numerous books, including multiple editions of leading textbooks and over 200 peer-reviewed publications in nutrition, preventive medicine, and epidemiology. Dr. Katz is the founder and former director of Yale University's Yale Griffin Prevention Research Center, past president of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, president and founder of the nonprofit True Health Initiative, and founder and CEO of Diet ID. He is a fellow of the American College of Preventive Medicine, the American College of Physicians, the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, and Morse College, Yale University. His career-long focus has been the translation of science into action for the addition of years to life and life to years, and the confluence of human and planetary health. He is an incredible writer, thinker, and a voice of reason in the midst of all the noise in the field of nutrition and public health. And it's always such a great pleasure for Dean and I to hear his thoughts. This episode was broadcasted live to our Neuro Academy audience, and we had a live Q&A session at the end. Neuro Academy is a membership-based online environment outside of social media, where you will have access to multiple evidence-based on-demand courses and engage with a thriving and supportive community of people on a journey towards better brain health. You will be connected with us as well as a team of incredible moderators who will guide you. With your monthly or annual subscription, you will have access to monthly live Q&A sessions, live cooking sessions, live podcasts such as this one, and Q&A with remarkable health leaders, ongoing on-demand courses on lifestyle, nutrition, and cooking, neurocoaching, anxiety, and many other courses on various topics related to brain health. You will be able to get CE or CME credits if you're interested and also receive certification after taking the courses. You'll get everything you need to achieve optimal health, a better, sharper memory, and prevent cognitive decline. Join us by visiting neuroacademy.com. And now let's listen to the episode with Dr. Katz. Thank you so much for joining us today. Dr. Katz, you're connected with the NeuroAcademy folks online, and uh, we're so glad you're here. Thank you so much for joining us today, and it's always wonderful to see you. Great to see you. Real pleasure. I, I apologize if we're off to a late start because of me. I, I apparently went down a, a rabbit's warren of wrong links and so forth, but here we are. Good to be in the right place. Absolutely. Yeah, technology wasn't our friend this morning either. I had several microphones fall on the ground, but that's that that happens. There are that's just life. days like that. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Wonderful. Um, as um, as I mentioned earlier, Dr. Katz, your book was the book of the month, and our uh, members truly enjoyed the incredible information that you share with everyone. One of the things that I absolutely love about your work is um, not just dispersing information uh, for communities and for individuals, but making it palatable and focusing on what that essentially means. Um, I really, truly appreciate the fact that you focus on translation of data, because as you know, when we go to medical conferences, everybody's in their own echo chambers and you know we're all you know, spitting information about a particular test or a particular finding, 
But what does that mean when you're standing in your kitchen with your pan in front of you and you're cutting food and vegetables and you're deciding what to pull out of your refrigerator and eat? Or what does it mean when you're sitting in front of TV and you decide to turn it off and go for a walk or call a loved one? That's the most important thing. And I don't know of many individuals who are actually focusing on that. So we truly appreciate your work. Thank you very much. And, and you know, it, it really was a major shift in my entire career trajectory. I, I knew quite early, it was probably about the middle of my internal medicine residency, that, that I wanted to do research. I wanted to do clinical research. So I wanted to work with actual humans and, and, and answer questions and apply those answers to advance the human condition, add years to lives, add life to years. And, you know, it was really a, quite a revelation at the time that I finished my training in preventive medicine to discover that we already knew what we needed to know to prevent the overwhelming majority of premature deaths, the overwhelming burden of chronic disease. And I routinely referenced the 1993 paper in the Journal of the American Medical Association, Actual Causes of Death in the United States by Bill Fagey and, and Mike McGinnis. And uh, you know, I, it, it's, it's the single paper I've talked the most about over the span of my career because it's the only paper that changed the trajectory of my career. I, I read that paper and basically felt the incredible urgency of the very value proposition you're describing now. We had the what, we knew what needed to be fixed. We didn't have the how. How do you apply this in the places people actually spend their lives, where people live and love and learn and work and play and pray? How do we make this happen there? And a translational research career was born right then and there. And then I, you know, I felt the same was true really in all the different domains of activity. So in clinical care, there was a need to talk to patients about what do I have for dinner tonight? In teaching medical students uh, and residents, you know, when back, back in, in, in the old days, you know, they, they taught us nutritional biochemistry and said, you've learned nutrition now. So we had biochemical <laughs> yeah. pathways, you know, and, and the expectation was, so now you know nutrition, but we couldn't say anything to patients. I yeah. mean, you know, there was absolutely nothing in any of what we were taught that translated into advice about what to eat. None of it was about food. And so I actually, this is 100 years ago, but I, I worked with medical students at Yale to establish an elective course in nutrition where we actually talked about food and, and its impact on health and you know how to translate the biochemistry into something more practical. Of course, that movement has really taken off. I, I'm very much a fan of culinary medicine and the idea that we can actually teach medical students how to make high quality, convenient meals for themselves and then they can pay that forward to their patients and their patients' families. I love that. We've come a long way. We have miles to go before we sleep, but we have come a long way. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely, beautiful. Um, the, one of the things that uh, you were talking about is this, this, this change that we're seeing, and it's, it's rapid. I mean, it's, um, it's something that um, uh, when we speak to some of the uh, people that have been in this field for a while, even 20 years ago, what they're seeing now is just absolutely mind-blowing as far as the prevalence the uh, access to and, and the type of information available to not just the clinicians, but the communities as well. There's a lot of organizations. You were the president of, president of ACLM, um, American College of Lifestyle Medicine, and many other organizations like them that are now really doing amazing work promulgating, spreading information to the communities, as well as the fact that as much as people really dislike this TikTok, Instagram universe, I really think that uh, uh, information light 
distills itself over time. Um, uh, you know, Steven Pinkert has an indirect reference to that, but it, over time, if, the more information it does, there is a lot of times that it gets pulled away one direction or another, but, but reason manifests itself over time. And, and that's where I'm very hopeful that as we go forward, not only the, the quality of information will become better and better, but also the, the, the type of information available to the population. One thing I wanted to kind of focus on at the beginning was the, the, the thing that we focus on is how does the layperson dis, the, the, discriminate between good science and bad science? I mean, every single day, literally every single day, there is not a single day that somebody doesn't bring an anecdotal case. And I have to rehash that anecdotes are great. I cured my migraine with, you know, plant-based medicine, food and all that, but I never even bring it up. I mean, this is one of the few times that I bring it up. A case of one does not make, you know, science. It's, it's a good, it, it's a, it gives you a little bit of a direction to work at. So from your perspective, and I know you're a thinker, given the amount of information out there uh, and, and the fact that that could be good or bad, how would how do you talk to your population to your to, to your communities as far as distilling and truly finding information appropriate information? Well, there's a lot to unpack there, Dean. And so for, the first thing I want to say is something that I, I said before we were recording and live, and and that is Aisha. I, I maybe both of you, but I know that Aisha is a rock star in social media. My my wife told me just before today's conversation. Be sure to tell Dr. Shirzai she's a rock star. I, I'm obsessed with her on Instagram. And so, you know, I mean, there, there, there are, you're absolutely right. Those, those channels that promulgate a lot of misinformation are potentially great portals of access to premier information, the kind of information the two of you provide. So I, I applaud you for doing that. Obviously, you're doing it in a very engaging way. You're reaching lots of people. That's tremendously important. I do have a theory about social media, the hive mind. And, and in some ways, I share your hope, Dean. I, I think the issue is what's the time horizon? Uh, you know, do, do, do we blow it all the smithereens before or after we yeah. get it right? So I'm, I'm hoping I'm hoping we get it right before we yeah. blow it all the smithereens, because, you know, I mean, we're heading heading in some pretty ominous directions with regard to everything from politics to the planet to the health of the population. So one of our great challenges is that misinformation tends to travel faster and more effectively than reliable information. And that's by design. It, you know, if you are dispensing propaganda, you can make it mm -hmm. go viral. You can make it titillating. You can make it scintillating. You can make it provocative. Uh, you know, in my world of nutrition for 30 years, the formula for writing a best-selling diet book is perfectly obvious. All you need to do is offer the moon and stars, promise magic, tell people that everything they've heard from everybody else is wrong, that you're the one person on the planet who knows the truth no one else is willing to share. And, you know, bestseller list every time. I mean, there have been 7,000 of those books. They're all nonsense. But, you know, it's variations on the theme of the same nonsense. And each time the public eats it up. So we have that problem. My theory is, and my hope, and, and the two of you may know more about this than I do, brain experts as you are, is that the hive mind may need to mature in much the same way as an individual mind. So if you think about an individual human, it really doesn't matter how brilliant they're destined to be. So baby Einstein was a baby, and baby Newton was a baby, and 
baby Maya Angelou was a baby and, you know, babies are babies and, and they're impressionable and naive. And it requires a certain amount of cognitive maturation to start filtering and to differentiating what's plausible from what's implausible and to ask the right questions so that you can unbundle mis and disinformation from reliable information. We learn to do that as individual humans. We become more skeptical, more cautious. Of course, you know, if we're pushed too far, we become cynical. That's a shame. But but skeptical and, you know, we don't accept everything we hear. If it sounds too good to be true, we've all heard it probably is. So individual minds mature that way. We could argue that the hive mind, this collective thinking we do via the Internet and social media is new. And so it was in its infancy. Maybe it's now in its toddlerhood or the earliest stages of an awkward adolescence. But it's young, it's immature, and it's gullible, and it eats up misinformation. But maybe the next phase, you know, Internet 3.0 or whatever it is, um, involves filters at the level of our collective processing of information, just like our individual brains require. We're, they're red flags. We say, no, I don't, you know, that, that, that kind of hyperbolic claim, I clearly can't trust it. And so the, the immediate reflexive reaction starts to be, cautious skepticism, open-minded skepticism, but skepticism, as opposed to, wow, that sounds incredible. Where do I get more of that? So we have to overcome all of that. So I, I'm hopeful we can. In the meantime, the question that you ask is a very good one. How do people differentiate? And and actually, you know, again, I'm really, I'm proud that, that the truth about food is, is the book of the month. I'm proud that it's up there on your bookshelf. That's what I spend the bulk of that book talking about. Because you know, I, I joke in the book, which is 200,000 words long, that the truth about food should have been seven words long and they wouldn't even be mine. I would have plagiarized all of them yeah. from Michael Pollan. I would have said, eat food, not too much, most of the plants, thank you and good night. So what the heck are the other 199,993 words? They're why is it so hard to get to the truth? What is all the misinformation, the disinformation, the deceit, the hyperbole in the way? So you know, there, there's some pretty simple uh, guidelines. I think first, uh, in this space, as in all others, if it sounds too good to be true, yeah. it probably is. Worthwhile things take time, take effort. Uh, you need a skill set to do almost anything worthwhile. In order to count, we had to learn basic math. In order to read, we had to learn the alphabet. In order to ride a bike, we had to learn how to ride and fall off a few times. It would make sense that if you want to manage your weight, and manage your health for the rest of your life, you probably have to acquire some skills. Anybody who tells you it's totally effortless, it's magical, they're trying to sell you something. Anyone who tells you, I know the truth, no one else does, anyone who claims to be the Messiah, uh, that sort of sounds like an overstatement, right? Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, in information is available to all of us. Lots of people with good training and expertise have common insights and differences of opinion. No one person has a monopoly on truth. So when someone tells you that, beware. In fact, there's a great quote from the philosopher Bertrand Russell that pertains beautifully here. Uh, Russell said, the whole thing wrong with the world is that fools and fanatics are always so sure and wiser people yeah. so yeah. full of doubts. And I don't, I don't know if that's the whole thing wrong with the world, but it's a big chunk of it. And I think that's that's fantastic and actionable advice. So when someone tells you, absolutely guaranteed 
you know, you're basically in an OxyClean commercial. Step yeah. away from your credit card and nobody will get hurt. Scientists, legitimate scientists do not talk that way. Uh, we never know everything. We never know anything with absolute certainty. But what we can do is say, you know, we have enough information to take really meaningful action. And in the area of lifestyle medicine, incredibly meaningful action. We could eliminate 80% of chronic disease. We could eliminate 80% of premature deaths in the world as we know it. We can add years to lives. We can add life to years. We can help save the planet into the bargain. That's enough. We don't need to be absolutely certain about every little thing. And then one final consideration is science advances incrementally. Knowledge is hard won. You know, a lot of people have put whole lifetimes of effort into what we know today. It isn't going to be thrown out the window tomorrow because of some study populating a news cycle. So the media dish out studies to us as if stop the presses. Everything we knew up until this morning was wrong. Yeah. The whole universe <laughs> has changed. Right. It doesn't work that way. So so, you know, ask yourself, what did I know up until now? How reliably did I know it? Where did that information come from? What am I hearing today that is either aligned with or maybe not aligned with that? How do I put them together? Don't throw out the baby yeah. with the bathwater. Sure, there's some bathwater in what we thought we knew yesterday, but there's yeah. a baby there. Hang on to that baby for dear life. Um, and then, you know, there are all sorts of other things we could put in the mix, like, you know, look for sources of information that tend to be impartial, like major universities check out the credentials of people who are dispensing advice often without a license to do so and, and on and on it goes. And simply beware of the fact that in this cyberspatial age, everybody has a megaphone. You don't need to know anything at all. You need no expertise to propound your opinion to yes. the masses, right? You need never have designed or built anything. You can tell people how to build a suspension bridge. You don't need to be a pilot. You can tell people how they ought to fly a 747. Everybody can tell anybody yeah. anything, and most of it's nonsense. So caveat yeah. emptor. Uh, it's, uh, it's so funny bro, you brought that up. Um, we're not going to name names here, but we were invited to a, 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 a retreat. Yes. We're, we try to stay away from those kind of retreats anyway, but that nonetheless, we, we went there and, and uh, we spoke on brain health and very circumspect and with a lot of... Um, you know, uh, uh, hedging and, and saying that uh, under this circumstances and so on and so forth. So it wasn't very satisfactory to the audience. Yeah, kind uh, of boring because uh, there were a lot of I don't knows. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we had to say, yeah, we, we don't know. Yeah, uh, yeah. Honest, honest. And then this young yeah. man who had zero background in nutrition, we're not going to name names, and, and good-looking guy who uh, has written a couple of books and got up there and said, I have the five secrets to better brain health. And it was bone broth, eggs and something like in any case and, and and this was supposed to be a safe space and all of that i'm like i'm sorry when it comes to science i have to raise my hand so i said i have a little bit of problem here um i have some questions to ask um and i said where is your data you know and 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 you know and as soon as i said that everybody got up and i said oh no no this is let let him i said okay that's fine so i leave and then this young lady comes to me and says do you know who you were talking to I said, yeah, I know, I know him. Yes, he has seven hundred thousand followers on Instagram. Right. There it is. There you go. That, that, so, that, so yeah, there. there. That, take, take, take that. Well, how many, how many does Gwyneth Paltrow have yes. for Goop? Right. I, you know, I mean, yeah, nonsense yeah. sells. 
So yeah, I, absolutely, it's a huge problem. It really is. And and you know, I mean, sometimes it's people with no training, no credentials, but with a lot yeah. of charisma. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's sort of a populism in the world of health promotion where people attract a large following, and then they use that large following to justify the you know, the fact that I'm a legitimate expert. Look how many yeah. people listen yeah. to me. So they never should have listened to you in the first place, but you said totally wild, provocative things. So they started following you and then you point to them and say, see, I'm legit. All these people are following me around and around it goes. So, you know, I, I've tried very hard to get directly at that issue in a couple of different ways. Um, first, at the invitation of Sarah Bersanat, who's the president of Old Ways, a great nonprofit organization that, that looks to cultivate health through heritage, very much mm -hmm. like Blue Zones, right? How, how do the healthiest cultures around the world live? So Old Ways has been looking at different heritage-based approaches to healthy eating, healthy living for a very long time. So Sarah invited me and Walter Willett way back in 2015 to co-chair a conference in Boston called Common Ground. And our job was to identify legitimate experts who had pretty massive disagreements about healthy eating. So advocates for meat consumption, advocates for dairy consumption, advocates you know who are quite ardent about veganism and get them all together have everybody make their presentation their case and in between sessions see if we could identify common ground and we were extremely successful so it was a fantastic conference one of the best i've ever attended and we actually published a common ground statement and from vegan to paleo and everything in between everybody agreed for for various reasons you know partly because of what we know about individual human health but also partly because we live in a world of 8 billion hungry mm -hmm. homo sapiens. The rules are different for 8 billion hungry homo sapiens than they were back in the Stone Age when we were, you know, scattered, wandering tribes in a, in a massive, empty world of inexhaustible resources. So even the paleo experts say, we kind of favor our higher protein intake, but if we want to live on a sustainable world, we have to source that yeah. from plants now. So everybody agreed we should eat real food. Everybody agreed we should eat most of the plants. And so it was a beautiful thing. And then I turned that into an ongoing campaign with the True Health Initiative, which pulls together this beautiful diversity of experts from 50 countries. And again, you know, in terms of diet, the whole spectrum from paleo and low carb to strictly low fat, whole food, vegan and everything in between. But all saying, you know, the fundamental principles of eating well are lots of vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans, lentils, nuts and seeds, or most of those or some of those and less of everything else. And, and everybody's willing to sign up for that. So I, I would argue that also becomes important when, when you're hearing people emphasize a fringe perspective, it, you can decide you like it. I mean, somebody tells you you should eat lots of meat and you happen to like meat, then their message will be appealing. But you can ask yourself a different question. You know, is this reliable? intelligence is this is this valid information I mean, you know if it's an invitation to do what i already wanted to do that's one thing but let's ask a different question can i filter this so how does this line up against consensus of experts around the world and we we, we have the true health initiative available as a resource to show here's what 500 world leading experts with very diverse perspectives from 50 countries mm -hmm. all agree on about healthy eating that that kind of reference standard, I think, is really important, really useful, but it doesn't reliably defend against the person who has no expertise, no training, a lot of charisma and a very strong opinion, getting up there and being a fanatic and being absolutely sure that their one way is the right way 
And I, I don't know how we prevent the public from following those false yeah. prophets. Um, so it's the dark side, really, of, of this democratic access to information. The, the, the Internet is a double-edged sword. It can be great. Everybody can access everything. I mean, you know, it's, it really is amazing, right? I mean, anything yeah. you want to know, you yeah. just Google it. Yeah, it's yeah. incredible. Um, but on the other hand, there are massive amounts of misinformation out there, too. And most people have a hard time. I, 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 not to digress, but uh, to me, this is such an important topic. And you always speak in the broader perspective, even when it came, when we will talk about the different kind of foods like fish and everything else. You, 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 you say that, um, you know, whether the data turns out to be positive or not, we have to look at the planetary perspective into this as well. And we love that perspective. But and when it comes to this kind of data, one of the things that I think sh we might, again, I'm, I'm hedging, but want to kind of focus on is what you've just spoken about, which is this bringing people around a common denominator, but a broader common denominator. Um, if we can make the broader common denominator the norm, it, we have not been used to that right. for millennia and you know hundreds of thousands of years. We we only knew the people around us, and it was for a long, long time. It was a hundred people, and then twelve thousand years ago, it became bigger, and then so on and so forth. So uh, we we haven't been used to anything bigger than the common denominator of our what we could hear. If we can broaden that right. common denominator beyond the normal the attractors, gravitations be it race, gender, this, all that, and, and, and to something that, that can potentially pull us to a much higher perspective, there is a chance to then use that as a gravitational pull or a black hole or whatever you want to call it, not to use it for sure, to bring language that, that speaks to everybody, which is what you just said with nutrition. I, I, I love it. I, it. So I'm thinking of two things. First, the, the great science fiction movie, Arrival which is all about that common language that sort of captures all people. It's a great movie it if you haven't seen it. I it really is. love it. Yeah. The, the other thing I'm thinking about, you know, having just made this trip to, to France to be with family, uh, the, the international terminal at JFK, I couldn't help thinking, looking at this yeah. unbelievable smorgasbord of humanity. <laughs> I mean, really just this parade, yeah. different cultures, different languages, different accents, different clothing, different... But we all, you know, you all had that same airport look. We were, you know, checking the boards and worried about where we were and where we were going and were we going to get there and getting through the lines. And we were all in it together. And it was this incredible, beautiful, multicultural mixture. We're all the same. I mean, you could see, I mean, people with their families, parents looking after their children. We were all the same and, and incredibly different and all exactly the same. I love that. And I think we can, so I'm hopeful, I'm a humanist as, as you are, and, and hopeful that we can ultimately define humanity as the common denominator. Uh, you know, maybe we need an extraterrestrial, uh, benevolent extraterrestrial to land here and get us there like an arrival. Maybe we can do it on our own, yeah. I don't know. But the other thing we can do, you know, I think we need the same perspective on the, the common denominator of truth. So, you know, again, much of the discussion about diet, from my point of view, has been far too granular. In other words, which diet can beat which diet? So you just brought up the issue of fish, Dean. So, you know, just, just to address that issue first, I have taken up the position over recent years that you can no longer be a health professional and not advocate for the health of the planet. There are no healthy, vital people on a ruined, uninhabitable planet. And let's be clear, we are headed in yeah. that direction, right? So I, so, you know, in terms of fish, I've said a couple things. First, 
most of the evidence we have would suggest that eating at least certain kinds of fish, let's say wild salmon, is good for me. But it's clearly not good for the fish. And if we're talking about running out of fish, you know, do you want to be the person who eats the world's last wild salmon or last swordfish or last halibut? That has to be part of the calculation, right? Are we doing this in a sustainable way? So that's one key consideration. Is fish good or bad? Yes. Uh, you know, for whom, for what, uh, when, under what circumstances, sustainable for people, for the planet, for both. Human health and planetary health are one thing. But then there's another issue. And that is, you know, our, our friends who are very ardent about plant exclusive eating will tell you about, you know, why eating fish is bad. But they're actually no and, and ardent proponents for pescatarianism or a Mediterranean diet that includes fish and seafood will tell you about all the advantages and long chain omega threes and all of that. What neither side has, and this is where we have to say we don't know, is the study that takes diets matched for overall quality so comparable in all ways except this one gets you know more of its protein from beans and lentils and has no fish or seafood and this one backs down the beans and lentils to make room for high quality fish and we directly compare that on a whole host of things that matter now that's another problem because what we really care about you and i is years in life and life in years, right? I mean, whether we're talking about maintaining cognitive vitality, physical vitality, all kinds of vitality, but you know, basically a bounty of years in life and life years. Well, you're not gonna study that in a randomized trial. You're gonna assign people to randomly eat fish for 80 years? No. So you know, the, even if we were to do that head-to-head -head trial, optimal vegan, optimal pescatarian, matched for quality, just that one difference, we would still probably only be able to do that for some number of months or at most a year or two. And what we'd be looking at would be biomarkers, which we would then use to project what's going to happen to these people over the next 50 years. We still wouldn't have the definitive answer. And that's crucial. So, you know, when, when you talk about fish, you can say, from my point of view, I think we need to be very, very careful about fish consumption because we're destroying the yeah. oceans. And it looks to me, based on all of the available evidence, that an optimal plant exclusive diet is at least as good as an optimal pescatarian diet. I can't tell you it's better for human health because we don't have the studies to say, but everything we do have suggests you can get to optimal health either way. And, and by the way, let's not quibble because either approach is so massively better than the prevailing oh, diets yeah. <laughs> that, you know, you, you can get there either way. Um, so, I agree with you. I think first, we really want to see a coming together of the human family. I mean, I, I would love the day to dawn when we recognize we are all cousins. Yeah. We really are. I mean, we're, we're, we're closely related to one another. We care about all the same things. That would be beautiful. And then once we get into content domains, to start focusing on the big picture there too and saying, look, if we just got the fundamentals of diet and lifestyle right, there'd be plenty of room to disagree about the details. You know, it, 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 if you move from a typical American diet, which is loaded up with animal foods that are terrible for you and terrible for the animals and terrible for the planet, and occasionally eat fish, whereas I choose to be you know, plant exclusive, we are still, you know, we, we both moved to the same quadrant of the galaxy and we are a long way from where we yeah. started. We could celebrate yeah. that. You know, there'd be a little bit of difference between us, but we could celebrate the common journey. Everything I do in the public health domain it, it is intended to empower the possibilities of that shared journey. 
because I think we all deserve and all want for ourselves and the people we love a bounty of years in life, a bounty of life and years. Absolutely. Beautifully stated, Dr. Katz. I'd love that. Um, and, and you're absolutely right. We sometimes get lost in the details um, so much, you know, uh, most of the conversation and the discussions are about, you know, small changes, say, for example, in fat intake and, you know, whether protein should come from plants uh, versus animals and things of that nature. There's so much of our uh, mind's real estate lost in that conversation that we forget that most people living in the United States and around the world, they don't get optimal diet at all. American Heart Association reports right. come and based on their definition of a healthy diet, which I have some trouble accepting, even based on their <laughs> yeah. definition of a healthy diet, only 0.4 or 0.5% of adults living in the United States uh, um, eat, eat a healthy diet. You have this massive right, number. Right, yeah. It, it's terrible. And, and uh, with, with a now formal definition for what we always call junk food. So, you know, basically we junk food, the, the definition was, you know, it when you see it and we all kind of did, but there was no operational definition for junk food kind of have one now, courtesy of Carlos Montero and colleagues who gave us the Nova classification for ultra processed food. But whether you use the former, I know it when I see it method, or you use the formal Nova classification, a number of publications indicate that about 67% of the calories in the diet of the typical American child come from junk. It isn't even food. It's junk where food ought to be. And I, I've routinely pointed out at, back in the day at, at the Prevention Research Center, we developed a program for elementary school kids called Nutrition Detectives that taught food label literacy, and really focused on getting young kids empowered to care about what they ate and, and to understand how to make better choices. And and I made the, the point to the kids and then preferentially to their parents, you know, we're talking about people who are going to grow, you know, so you, your son, your daughter, you know, there's going to be this much more of her or him this time next year. What do you want to grow that out of? It's got to grow out of something, right? You, you don't get something from nothing in the universe. There's got to be inputs. What are the inputs? Well, construction material. Where does it come from? One place and one place only. Food. So you're going to grow this much more of a child you love. Do you want to grow it out of A, junk, or B, good stuff? And think about what that body's going to need to weather over the course of a lifetime. Think about your house, you know, would you want to build your house out of rotten wood and just hope for the best? First storm that comes along, it falls down. Now you want to build your house out of good stuff because you want it to stand the test of time. What about your child? So, yeah, I mean, the, the, the prevailing American diet for adults is horrible. The prevailing American diet for kids is even more horrible. And leaving that behind and moving in the generally right direction of real food, mostly plants, as, as Michael Pollan so beautifully put it, offers us a massive opportunity to improve personal family health and the health of the planet and be kinder and gentler to our fellow creatures. And then, right, we instead of embracing that and saying this is a mandate to all of humanity, we wind up bogging down in internecine warfare between standard vegan and low-fat yeah. vegan. Oh. Yes, I can add olive oil. No, you can't add olive oil. I mean, you know, we are, it's how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. Who cares, right? I mean, it, once that's our problem, yes or no to the addition of extra virgin olive oil to an otherwise excellent diet, 
wow, will I be ready to celebrate that day? Because we are, you know, we're, we're not even in the same quadrant of the galaxy as that. Um, and yet that's where we bog down. And, and, and by the way, I don't know if people want my answer to that question, but, you know, should an optimal diet be high or low in fat? Yes. In other words, it doesn't matter. I mean, again, look at the blue zones. Uh, I love the work of Dan Buettner. I, I love the real world example of people living to be 100 or more without chronic disease, without cognitive decline. It's a beautiful thing. I, I talk about the blessings of the blue zones as living long, prospering with vitality, and then in the fullness of time going gentle into that yeah. good night. I mean, that's the trifecta right there. It doesn't get any better than that. And you know, we have two of the world's five identified blue zones in the Mediterranean region of the world where dietary fat intake is high. It's great fat. It's extra virgin olive oil preferentially. But in Icaria, Greece, and Sardinia, Italy, they eat a lot of oil, but it's good yeah. oil. In two of the world's blue zones, fat intake is extremely low. Loma Linda, California, among the Seventh-day Adventists, and Okinawa, Japan, it's even lower, very, very low. They, they have the same health outcomes. So in other words, if it's an optimal diet made up of optimal foods in a balanced, sensible assembly, you can get there either with a very low fat intake or a quite high fat intake and probably something in the middle. And the fifth blue zone is in the middle. That's, that's the uh, Nicoya Peninsula in Costa Rica where the fat intake is pretty much smack dab in the middle of Okinawa and Ikaria. Yeah. <laughs> so across that whole spectrum, you know, essentially the message is using a macronutrient threshold as a proxy for high quality, wholesome foods in a balanced, sensible assembly doesn't work yeah. very well. Instead, focus on wholesome foods in a balanced, sensible assembly and let the fat content of your diet take care of itself. It can be high, lower in between. And if your foods are good and, and the assembly of foods is good, all will be well. Done. Beautifully stated. Absolutely. <clears throat> we, 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 we had some problems uh, in, a, in the, in the plant-based world because in our book, uh, there's some extra virgin olive oil. And, and for multiple reasons, we even cited information. Following the Mediterranean and the my diets, uh, you know, the, the recommended. The, the recommended. Absolutely. I, I, I'm right there, uh, right there with you. So I, you, you earlier mentioned some young, good looking person with charisma who was spouting this information to 700,000 followers. I, I'm, I'm going to return the favor and say somebody we both know very well, uh, somebody who's actually revered and adored in the nutrition world, and, and, and rightly so, uh, but has a very large following and a great deal of influence, has a very, very strong view against any added oil. Mm -hmm. And with all due respect, and again, I won't name names, people can guess as, they, as the spirit moves them, but with all due respect to this person, um, he or she cherry picks the literature uh, to find very rare studies that help make the point. Uh, and, and so, you know, one example would be endothelial function. Yeah. I know quite a bit about endothelial function because we, we had a vascular lab at the prevention center for years. We, we conducted endothelial function mm -hmm. studies and published them. And so you know, it's, it's kind of a master measure of overall cardiovascular health. I like it a lot. It's ultrasound. It's non-invasive. It tells mm -hmm. you are your blood vessels happy or unhappy today? And so there, there apparently was a study, I've tracked it down. It's now about 20 years old. It was done in 10 people. It gave them unspecified olive oil and looked at endothelial function, which deteriorated slightly. And then that study gets trotted out to say, olive oil is toxic. 
Well, one thing we know is that, you know, just calling something olive oil tells you nothing about its mm -hmm. quality. It could be rancid. Uh, it could be, you know, industrially extracted using chemicals, or it could be the good stuff. Yeah. Fresh, extra virgin olive oil, cold pressed. They're radically different, right? I mean, you know, just because they have the same name. It's like saying, you know, it's got to be good for me. It's a salad. Well, if your salad is mixed greens, yes. If it's a chef salad loaded up with, you know, ham and bologna and, and croutons and blue cheese dressing, not so much, right? You can call them both the salad. It doesn't make them the same. Same is true with olive oil. So there have been dozens of larger, better, more clearly defined intervention studies with olive oil since that one 20 years ago, dozens. And almost uniformly, they show a benefit of extra virgin olive oil. So if you stick to your message, olive oil is toxic, and cite the one bad, small, 20-year-old study and ignore the bulk of literature that's followed, that's a distortion, if not a deception. And that's a shame. Um, and it's, it's even more of a shame when someone with a great deal of respect and credibility does that. And what it tells us is they are swapping out epidemiology for ideology. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to resist that. And, and, you know, the audience should consider that we're all human. We all have preferences. We all have biases. We all have points of view. But as an honest scientist, you have to work really extra hard to say, here's what I know. And oh, by the way, here's what I want or wish or believe or hope. Here's what I do and here's why I do it. But here's what I know. They're not the same. There's what I know and it informs what I do. But then I have certain passions that inform what I do. They don't have to be your passions. And so I have to work really hard to unbundle those two things for you. And I've tried really hard over the course of my career to differentiate epidemiology from ideology and to elevate epidemiology, in other words, the weight of evidence, what really happens to most people most of the time based on evidence, to differentiate it from my own yeah. ideology. It's not that I don't have ideology. I just don't think the advice I offer the public should be based on that. Unless I switch over and say, now, here's what I prefer because I prefer it. This is not what I know based on data. This is my personal preference. Let me make that distinction for you. That's fine. Everybody can do that. We're all entitled to have a point of view. And, and you know, maybe our followers want to hear about that. Um, so I will say, you know, I, I, my diet is not high in fat, but I make no effort to avoid the addition of high quality oils, which my wife, she's French from the Mediterranean part of France, uses extra virgin olive oil routinely in her cooking. It's important to her. And I think my diet is just as good with or without that addition, maybe better with it. Um, but, you know, it's one of two different ways of achieving a high diet quality. So my personal preference is yes to extra virgin mm -hmm. olive oil. But my view from altitude and the epidemiology tells me no extra virgin olive oil is certainly not a cardiotoxin. Most of the studies suggest it has beneficial effects. But do you need to add extra virgin olive oil to your diet to derive an optimal benefit from food as medicine? To the best of my knowledge, no. You can achieve the same high quality effects of diet in a low fat version if that's your preference. Absolutely. Amazing. Thank you so much for that, Dr. Katz. For the regular consumer, um, you did say that quality matters, and I agree with you. 
But, you know, for someone living in a city with a job and not having enough time to do the research to find out about quality, what do you suggest? Like, where do we get good quality olive oil from? I mean, every bottle in the supermarket says they're the best. So how, how do people go ahead and delineate that? Well, I, you know, for some people, it's out of reach. It's out of reach because it's not on the shelf of a bodega or it's out of reach because if it is on a shelf they have access to, they can't afford it. It's expensive. Mm -hmm. And so we, we have perverse incentives in the overall system. Uh, you know, our, our, our farm bill supports the production of a few monocultures that favor agribusiness and doesn't support the production of a wide variety of fruits and vegetables that would favor eaters. We have a farm bill, not a food bill. Mm -hmm. We really need a food bill. And, and, you know, I'm not the first to say this. People I respect tremendously, like Michael Pollan, like Mark Fitman, have you know, written passionately over the years about the fact that we, we need a food bill that takes into account what ultimately happens with food. In other words, people eat it. And then what happens yeah. to the people? That, we have to care about that. We have to care about how we're treating our fellow creatures on this planet. We have to care about how we're, we're treating the land. Are we, are we leaving the soil behind in a way where it can support crops for the next generation and the next and the next? Are we looking seven generations ahead? You know, the answers to all those questions, sadly, are no. We're ignoring all of that and just developing policies that favor big agribusiness. That then reverberates through a system where price incentives favor uh, mass-produced junk and some high-quality additions to diets are out of reach for most people. We can address that with policy. We could address that frankly, at the back end with food as medicine programming. So, you know, imagine programs where we offer people guidance to high quality food, financial incentives for choosing it. Well, who's going to make those payments? Well, I say the people who are currently paying the cost of their chronic disease. So we could embed this in Medicare, Medicaid, private insurers, self-insured employers who sponsor food as medicine and say, look, we can either help you afford high quality food at the front end so you avoid chronic disease you remain productive, you're firing on all cylinders, you don't wind up in the ER or the hospital, you win, we win, or we can let you eat the junk that most Americans eat, gain weight, get sick, and then we hold the bag and have to pay the costs of your frequent visits to the endocrinologist, the ER, and stays in the hospital. Mm -hmm. You lose, we lose, right? So we need to shift the whole system. But there is much more to the story, Aisha, because while extra virgin olive oil is expensive, and may or may not be on the shelf where you shop. Although, you know, people have access to, to mainstream supermarkets. It is, and it will be labeled as such. And you look for that extra virgin olive oil, cold pressed. Ideally, you know, you can do some research online ahead of time to know which brands are reliable, because if marketers are lying to you, I don't really know a reliable defense against that. Mm -hmm. But there but there's there are many varieties of, of high quality olive oil and, and other oils available. Mm -hmm. So, yes, you're going to spend more money on that. But if you eat more beans and lentils and less beef, you're going to yeah. save a lot of money. It's, it's one of the aspects of high quality eating that gets far too little attention from my point of view. You can save money doing it. The optimal diets around the world are not high cost diets. Yeah. Eating close to nature cuts out cost. Drinking water instead of soda cuts out cost. And oh, by the way, a whole lot of sugar and calories you don't need as well. So save money, do better for your body. Beans and lentils, unbelievably economical, nutrition powerhouses, better for the planet, kinder and gentler to our fellow species. Everything about them is good. Swap them into your diet and swap beef out and use the money you save to afford extra virgin olive oil. Similarly, cooking grains, a 
a wide variety of cooking grains, many of which most people have never even heard of, with a whole range of flavor profiles, a whole range of protein content, beautiful foods, uh, quick and easy to prepare. I, I know you're expert at this, Aisha. My wife, Catherine, is expert at this. Yeah. People who want to see how to cook a wide variety of grains effortlessly, go to Quizinicity.com. That's where all her videos appear. And you just click on the instructional videos for Quizinicity Basics, and she'll show you. You know, you, you can have bulgur wheat or whole wheat couscous ready in minutes, no cooking. Yeah. And it's it's the basis for a great dish. We actually had a wonderful Mediterranean couscous salad with chickpeas last night. It was fantastic. Oh, nice. uh, and, and it took her 10 minutes to make our dinner. And it was yeah. great. Yeah. So incredibly inexpensive. So, again, the money that you save by eating that, you can invest in more fruits and vegetables, which tend to be pricey, extra virgin olive oil. And, and when all is said and done, you can you know, trade up the overall quality of your diet dramatically and spend no more. If, if everything you save, you invest in high quality food, it's a wash or potentially wind up spending actually a little less. And what it comes down to is, yes, some high quality foods are expensive, but many high quality foods are not. It comes down to skill power. Most mm -hmm. people lack the skill set to know how to navigate their choices. And that's something we could change with education. And we're committed to doing that at Diet ID. You're committed to doing that with, with all of the various ways you reach people. Thank you so no. much. No, I think the, the main, uh, the main reason we created this Neuro Academy was just that to have a community of individuals supporting each other and going through this journey. Like for example, we have live cooking sessions and tomorrow we're making a lentil mushroom burger, just experimenting with different foods um flavors uh, and i agree with you i think um creating that environment where people can have access to certain skills to bring about small little incremental changes in their lives towards that optimal goal is so important love that i love it now one of the other things we talked about aisha before we started recording was that you and Catherine need to get together same kitchen share cooking tips dean and i are going to show up just to eat but uh i, 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 I i'm holding you to that i absolutely want that time you'll make it happen definitely you know you come to redondo we have this beautiful bike path right across from our home from redondo to santa monica i mean if, if i've had uh, moments of epiphany it's been during those bike rides so i know yeah, you're an athlete would love to have you there yeah we'll make it happen. one of the one of the things that is um, that that we really uh, appreciate about the, the approach that you and your wife take and we, we do is uh, the cultural component that you brought in, which is looking at people's proclivities and tendencies and how they 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 are what foods they're used to. I mean, taste is not taste. Taste is culture. Taste is habit. Um, taste is a lot more than the sensation they think that that seems to be more intrinsic than anything else. It's not. It's 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 a learned concept. We learned this when traveling and doing public health in in Somalia and in Afghanistan and all these places. And taste that we were not used to was the best food that that, that they could uh, uh, they they actually experienced. And we learned to appreciate those tastes. But but one of the things we do in our Healthy Minds Initiative, which is our nonprofit in the communities, is we don't just impose, here's the Mediterranean diet and go eat this. That's just ridiculous. What you can do is kind of take the foods that people are used to and bring tweaks, 10%, 20%. Right. Right, I mean, right, right. right now in Loma Linda, where the healthiest people in the world live, in our clinic, literally people in their 90s, they come in with their first signs of maybe some neuropathy or something. And yet right across the 10, which is the same space, 
We have people in their 40s regularly. I should see she's a stroke specialist. I mean, 40 year olds by the dozens come in with strokes. Right. If people want to know a disparity, there's nowhere yeah. in the world that you see that disparity more. And if we yeah. can change the diet 10%, but along the way, make sure that people are familiar with that food, it, it, that's instead of fighting over olive oil, I don't want to belabor that point, sorry. <laughs> but but uh, so that we, are, I com we completely agree on, so, on that element. Yep. Yeah, so, so two really important points there, Dean. First, uh, I coined a term 25 years ago, I think, taste bud rehab. And it, it was based on scientific literature and my experience with patients. But, you know, basically I, I observed, read, and then claimed that taste buds are adaptable little fellows when they can't be with the foods they love, they learn to love the foods they're with. That whole concept for me began with curiosity about what we might call dietary anthropology or sociology. The fact that, okay, isn't it interesting? We're all the same, right? We're all human. Biologically, we're the same. We're, we're all cousins at one remove or another. But really interesting that Mexican babies grow up learning to love hot chilies and Indian babies grow up learning to love curries and Japanese babies grow up learning to love raw fish and American babies grow up learning to love donuts and potato chips. And, you know, our taste buds are all the same. Biologically, we're the same. So what's going on? And, you know, French babies grow up learning to love foie gras or whatever. Um, and what's going on is just what you stated, familiarity. We learn to love the foods we're with. Familiarity is really important. We know, and of course, you know this very well, that food preference is influenced by the maternal diet during pregnancy, that actually there is essentially pre-programming of flavor preference via the placenta. There is an enhancement of that effect via breast milk. We have very strong evidence that you can alter taste preferences in early childhood with exposure during pregnancy, during breastfeeding. And then throughout life, we have studies. One of the more famous is the Iowa Women's Health Study from about 40 years ago showing that when you significantly change the quality of diet, at first, people miss the foods they're used to loving. You go out 12 weeks, not a long time. Mm -hmm. They have aversions to some of the junky foods they were used to eating and cravings for some of the newer high quality foods that are part of the intervention. That's really impressive. You know, think about doing a 180 in what you crave and what you what's what's distasteful to you in, in as little as 12 weeks and actually being able then to love the foods that love you back for the rest of your life. It's incredible. So first, totally agree about that point. Taste bud rehab is accessible to everybody. You don't have to think about a choice between I can either eat what tastes good and have bad health or have good health and, and eat food I don't like. No, you can actually adapt to a high quality diet so you prefer it and love food that loves you back. The other thing, you know, that this issue of multicultural approaches who totally agree. So I think, and, and you know, forgive me, I have a hammer, so I'm seeing a nail here, but at Diet ID, um, I, I think we do that better than anybody. So, you know, essentially what we've done is we've reinvented dietary assessment and, and guidance for, for the digital age. We make dietary assessment effortless. We can do it 60 seconds comprehensively with an image-based approach. But one of the things we were committed to from the start as we put together our diet map, so diet type on the x-axis, diet quality on the y-axis, was saying we need to produce the same 10 tiers of diet quality for all the different ways people really do like to eat. So, yes, we need some of the mainstays like Mediterranean and flexitarian and vegetarian and vegan, 
But we need Latin American, we need Mexican American, we need Caribbean American, we need Chinese American, we need South Asian, we need Middle Eastern. And anytime we encounter a population that's not in our map, we need to figure out how to create the same spread of diet quality for that group. So if we find you, you are struggling with diabetes, your weight, blood pressure, whatever it may be, you're Mexican American and that's how you like to eat and your diet quality is a four out of 10, we don't say, okay, you've got to eat in a totally different way. You need the Mediterranean diet. We say, we can get you to a tier 10 Mexican-American diet. All the same improvements in overall diet quality. So significant reductions in sodium and added sugar, significant increases in magnesium, calcium, fiber, healthy fats, you know, all that. Same thing you'd get from the Mediterranean diet, but with an assembly of foods that's native to your palate, native to your culture, and consequently appealing. And I know one of the things that the three of us agree about very strongly is a diet doesn't do anybody any good if they're not willing to eat it. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, ultimately they're the boss. We, 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 you know, it's our job as physicians to service our patients and empower them with options that will actually work in their lives. And I think this idea of improving diet in the lanes where people want to be and recognizing there are lots of different ways to get there. The basic theme of eating well is not negotiable, but which variant on the theme is right for you absolutely is. And we can empower the journey along multiple parallel pathways. Absolutely. I, I tell you, you know, growing up in Pittsburgh and eating so unhealthy, I, I played a lot of sports, but ate terribly. I mean, it was completely meat based and, and junk food based and, and, um, I never, you know, we, we kept saying that you, your taste buds change. And I had a belief that it did. It really did. But nothing became more evident when we actually recently went to a trip. Aisha gifted uh, the family uh, for my birthday uh, to a trip in Italy. And it was just remarkable. It was a great trip, healthy. We tried to stay uh, well, as healthy as possible, but definitely plant-centered. But lots more carbs than we were, we were used to. A lot more carbs refined than carbs. refined carbs. Just carb. a lot of pasta and pizza, basically. Right. Lots of yeah. pasta and pizza, but, and they had to change the pizza for us and all of that. But I, I cannot believe as soon as we landed back in <laughs> LA, the oh, yeah. this sense, this desire, this 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 drive to get a salad. Mm -hmm. I, I never thought that I would actually feel that, or, or that was a remarkable insight to, to myself. We were craving greens and shredded yeah. vegetables. Yeah. I, I have the, absolutely. So, uh, Dean, you were saying earlier, you know, we don't want to overemphasize anecdote. You're right. I mean, you know, data and study, you know, we're scientists, so, you know, we, we, we like studies. But let's face it, anecdote, when it's you, really matters because it's actually what you're feeling. It's a very intimate yes. experience. So I, I, same exact thing for me. When I travel, uh, you know, my, my commitment to a healthy diet is lifelong and I'm quite adamant about it. So I, I don't bend the rules very much when I travel. But, you know, you went in Rome, right? I mean, you, you got you to do what, what's going on there. So, you know, I eat pasta when I'm in Italy, too. Uh, whereas at home, we, we make pasta pretty routinely, but it's whole grain pasta. It's much harder yeah. to find whole grain pasta when you're traveling. But what I find is, yeah, I mean, depending on the circumstances when you're traveling here in a hotel or something, getting access to fresh produce can be tough and exactly the same thing. I'm just craving yeah. fresh fruits, fresh vegetables. I got, I want to dive into the biggest salad I can find. This first thing I come home, I want to shower and then a massive bowl of salad. I feel exactly the same way. And, and, and so people probably think we're, you know, uh, it's those flaky nutrition folks, but we're not, we're, we're human just like you. We've got taste buds just like you. It, it really is 
it's a learned preference. And mm-hmm. you know, maybe you don't have to go quite as far as we've gone, but but it, you know that you should really appreciate the fact that if you take your taste buds on a journey with you toward better eating, they will reward you by saying, thank you, I actually like this better food and I like it more yeah. and more every week. And each time you keep giving it to me, I'm going to send you a thank you by saying yum and everybody yes. wins. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful thing, it really is. Amazing. Dr. Kaz, do you have a few minutes for questions if you don't mind? Sure. All right. So uh, I've collected some questions from our lovely audience here. Um, and uh, one of them actually uh, posted about a recent opinion piece, sorry, opinion piece that was published in Washington Post by Dr. David Ludwig. Uh, I'm familiar. I'm familiar with it. Yes. Uh, You can keep going or I could just jump in right there. Uh, uh, So just to just to let others know. So this is about a paper that, um, you know, he basically says that the question was, what if the focus on calories and energy balance is simply wrong, that the reason people are gaining weight is not because of calories, but because of the quality of the food that is uh, that people are consuming. So essentially meaning that it's not the total calories and energy balance, but it's the quality of the macronutrients that are in our food. I know your thoughts about this, Dr. Katz, uh, because I've read your article, but maybe if you could, I don't know if you've read this uh, opinion piece, but maybe you can expand on it for us a little bit. Yes, and I I know Dr. Ludwig's um, perspective very well. He wrote a book, uh, Always Hungry, that, that propounded this theory at length and actually reviewed it with and, and for him at his request. And um, I, I will say, you know, we, we were closer uh, at one point in our careers and we, we sort of had a parting of the ways over this this theory. I, I with, with all due respect to Dr. Lowe, who's, who's made very important contributions in the area of glycemic index and load and its effect on health. So, you know, really a, a very, very smart guy and a very talented researcher. I, I think this is a space where he sort of fall in love with a particular theory and is committed to defending it no matter what the evidence shows. And in many ways, the whole debate is about a false question. Is it the quality or the quantity of calories that matter? Yes. I mean, it's like asking, is it the quality or the quantity of fuel you put in a gas tank that matters? Yes. If you put in the wrong fuel, really bad fuel, you're engine may fall out. You're, you're basically, you'll be belching black smoke from your car and you won't go anywhere. On the other hand, if you put in a tiny amount of fuel of high quality, you won't be able to go very far. If you put in more fuel, you'll be able to go further. The, the, the debate is a false one. Both matter. What, what many of us recognize and what I think has been written about quite beautifully by people like Michael Moss, Pulitzer Prize winner, um, is that manipulation of foods changes the number of calories it takes to feel full and satisfied. This is done on purpose. So Michael Moss, again, Pulitzer Prize winner, author of Salt, Sugar, Fat, and Hooked, wrote a New York Times Magazine cover story entitled, this is the actual title, The Extraordinary Science of Addictive Junk Food. Let that sit with you for a minute. In other words, major food companies hire really smart people with degrees like PhDs, give them toys like functional MRI machines and marching orders to design food. You can't stop eating until your arm gets tired from lifting it to your mouth. And when they succeed, they get a bonus payment. That's what you're up against. Now, is that quality or quantity? Yes. 
the quality of those foods is very poor. Those are ultra processed junk foods, but they are designed to maximize the quantity of calories you consume before you feel full. And ultimately, calories are just like how much fuel you put in a tank. Mm-hmm. So the more fuel, uh, you know, the, 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 the more you can burn that fuel. And in the case of your body, you burn it for activity, you burn it for growth, and the surplus you put into storage is body fat. Ultimately, there is no question. I don't think there can be any debate. It's the number of calories we consume that determines whether we're in a healthy energy balance, a healthy weight balance, or we're gaining weight over time. But it's absolutely the quality of the foods we eat that determine how many calories we wind up eating before we say, I'm done now. Thank you very much. And what we've just Mm -hmm. been discussing, taste bud rehab, learning to love foods that love you back, getting used to, however incrementally, higher quality foods, you actually crave fruits and vegetables. One of the fantastic value propositions of higher quality foods that doesn't get nearly enough attention is that they reverse engineer the Moss effect. I I don't know that Michael would thank me for using that term, but you know, this idea that food is engineered to be addictive. Well, you can't engineer a walnut to be addictive because it's just a walnut. You can't engineer broccoli or bananas or whole grains or beans or lentils, foods that come to you direct from nature. Nobody's engineering anything. I guess they could do genetically engineered, but but let's just leave that out of the, the discussion now and say foods with an ingredient list of one word, you cannot put engineered mischief into those foods. And so among their many virtues, they are not designed to maximize the calories it takes to feel full. So I, you know, basically, I think by elevating this idea that calories don't count, I I think Dr. Ludwig is doing a disservice because we know they do. But I completely agree with him that, and and by the way, it's not all about a given macronutrient. He places the emphasis on carbohydrate, but you can, you can get fat over eating protein. You can get fat over eating fat, right? And excess is an excess. Studies make that very clear. So the issue is how much eating do you do and why? And my answer would be, I think people want to eat till they feel satisfied. If you can reduce the calories it takes to feel satisfied, so you're not spending the rest of your life hungry, most people would say, thank you very much. Well, you can by eating higher quality foods. So it is the quality of foods that determines the quantity of calories it requires before you say, I'm done now, thank you. And if you can dial that down by elevating the quality of your foods, you win. You can achieve a healthy weight overall better health and not have to go hungry to do it. And it has very little to do with how much carbohydrate is in your diet. Final thing I'll say here, and I know you guys agree with this, talking about carbs the way our culture talks about carbs is just silly. Everything from lentils to lollipops is a carbohydrate source. And to lump that all together and pretend it's the same thing is just silly. Oh, thank you so much for saying that. Absolutely. Absolutely. We completely agree. Thank you. Um, The next question is about saturated fats. I mean, so we've talked about this in the past too. There's a good understanding and significant amount of data that shows that consumption of saturated fat increases the risk for cardiovascular disease. And now that, you know, with the latest data, it shows that even Alzheimer's disease, the neurodegenerative process that has a lot of overlap with cardiovascular disease is also increased with consumption of saturated fats. However, there are some scientists and there's some conversation in the background that says not all saturated fats are the same. And what are your thoughts about that? And there's there's this tendency to kind of soften up the edges as far as um, uh, the association of saturated fat and disease is concerned. 
Another really, really good question. So again, I'm extremely proud you have the truth about food up there on the bookshelf. This is another book I was privileged to write with Mark Bittman, How to Eat. I think Mark is great. I, you know, his perspective on agriculture and food policy is really just incredible. He's right up there with Michael Pollan. And when we were writing this book together, one of the things we tried to figure out is, you know, if we were going to pick just one word to say what's important about diet and health, what one word would it be? And it wouldn't be saturated fat and it wouldn't be sugar and it wouldn't be salt. The one word we settled on was balance. Basically, you know, any kind of animal has adaptations, right? Lions need to eat meat. Wildebeest need to eat grass. Uh, elephants, giraffes need to eat leaves. My horse needs to eat oats and hay. and Right. And, and so you know, dolphins need to eat fish. I mean, what's right for an animal is all about the kind of animal it is, adaptations. So good or bad, you know, we're not talking about good versus evil. We're talking about what takes that animal's native metabolism physiology in a direction aligned with its adaptations into balance and what takes it in a direction misaligned with its native adaptations out of balance. And, and that really changes the whole conversation because then it's not a question of, you know, you need to vote saturated fat, good or bad. In diets that are already excessive in saturated fat, saturated fat is bad because more of what you're getting too much of is bad. In diets that happen to be extremely low in saturated fat, you probably wouldn't notice the ills of saturated fat at all until you hit a particular threshold. Similarly, mm -hmm. sodium. Sodium, as, as you both know, it's an essential nutrient. I'm sure you know you both saw and treated as I did in medical training, hyponatremia, where people have too little sodium in their blood. It's a life-threatening condition. So it's an essential nutrient up to a point. And then if you keep getting more, 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 well, now it's a toxin. And so which is it? Well, it's both. And it's a question of balance. If you get, you know, when, when diets are soaking in salt, getting more salt is bad because most people are getting too much. Same with sugar, right? There's room for a little bit of sugar in the diet, but most people are getting way too much sugar on and on it goes. So in general, my verdict about saturated fat is based on that kind of thinking. The typical American diet is very excessive in saturated fat. It's an imbalance. You know, we, we do not have a balanced array of fatty acids in our diet. We're not getting the optimal distribution of different polyunsaturates, monounsaturates, and some saturated fat. And by the way, there is saturated fat in places people might not think, like nuts, mm -hmm. like seeds, like some beans, mm -hmm. like some lentils, extra virgin olive oil. There are some saturated fatty acids there, right? So there's a mix of fats everywhere you go, even in the healthiest of foods. So it's a question of balance. We are out of balance. We have an excess. Adding more when you have an excess is bad, not because the food is evil or the nutrient is evil, but because excess takes you out of balance. The, the other thing to note is nobody eats saturated fat. People eat mm. foods. And the foods that are delivery vehicles for saturated fats are meats, processed meats, dairy, processed dairy. And they have a bunch of other liabilities attached to them as well. Huge environmental footprint. That's bad. Um, tend to be quite high in sodium. In the case of processed dairy, often high in added sugar as well. In the case of processed meat, often high in added carcinogens, and on and on it goes. And so it's really very hard to study the isolated health effects of saturated fat, because again, people are not saying, I will have concentrated saturated fat from a test tube, thank you. They're eating foods that are delivery vehicles for saturated fat. Finally, 
Um, Aisha, you raised the issue that there's debate, not all saturated fat is created equal. That's true. So there, you know, what we're talking, when we say fat, it, you know, we're talking about many different specific compounds. And when we say polyunsaturated, monounsaturated, or saturated, we're talking about major families. And within those families, there are members that behave quite differently. So, you know, for example, the principal saturated fat in dark chocolates, stearic acid, looks to be fairly neutral in terms of effects on platelet aggregation, so making your blood sticky, on blood flow, on blood pressure, on atherogenesis, on inflammation. Um, that's different from the prevailing fats we encounter in dairy and meat, palmitic and myristic acid. Uh, similarly, the principal saturated fatty acid in coconut is lauric acid. Also looks to be, you know, you, you look across the expansive literature, you don't see any clear evidence of benefit, but you do see it doesn't look to be as pro-inflammatory as the other saturated fatty acids. So we can allow for that. We can say, look, I mean, most people with an excess of saturated fat in America are not getting it from dark chocolate covered coconut, They're getting it from meat and dairy. So we can reach a summary judgment that says, yeah, saturated fat's bad because we get too much and more of what you have too much of is bad. We can also still allow for the fact not all saturated fatty acids are created equal. And if you improve your diet overall and it's really good for you and you occasionally want to eat dark chocolate covered coconut, Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I love it. Nuance. 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 Incredible. Yeah. All right. Um, so the the last question that um, is, uh, you know, becoming more of a, um, a social issue almost is organic versus non-organic, you know. Um, so, so there are a lot of proponents um, in, in the world of nutrition that say organic or nothing. Um, because of the pesticides contributing so much to disease, whether it's neurological conditions or cardiovascular conditions. But at the same time, Dr. Katz, we live in a society where, you know, more than half of the population don't have access to fresh produce, let alone organic fresh produce. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I, I think there's truth on both sides of this argument. So first, I, I, I have routinely said throughout my career, I'm a public health pragmatist let's not make perfect the enemy of good. So there's perfect, which is aspirational, and there's the good we can do in the world. We could dramatically reduce the burden of chronic disease if we could get the average person to eat a lot more fruits and vegetables, whether or not they're organic. The net effect of a higher intake of fruits and vegetables, it basically is predominant over the differential health effect of conventionally grown versus organic. That's very clear. Most of the studies, that have looked at net health effects over extended periods of time of high intake of fruits and vegetables haven't even adjusted for you know organic farming. So it's 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 invisible to the large research studies that have been done, and yet the benefit is still clear. So you know, given a choice between you can either have organic produce or no produce at all, get the produce you can get. But mm -hmm. there's absolutely truth on the other side of this, namely putting toxic chemicals into the environment, whatever the direct human health effects are, and I'll circle back to that in a second, you know, I mean, it gives us scenarios like Silent Spring, right? I mean, essentially we're poisoning the web of life because, you know, insects that are eaten by birds are poisoned, so the birds are poisoned, so we don't have the birds, and, you know, on and on. It, goes, it reverberates through a web of life. We are part of that web of life. That's always been clear to people who wanted to see what hides in plain sight, but it's never been more clear than as we start to dismantle it all and we start to feel mm -hmm. the effects of disrupting ecosystems. So 
the health of other species is human health. The health of ecosystems is human health. The health of nature is human health. And putting toxic chemicals is bad. And, and we know about a lot of the harmful effects on other species. In terms of harmful effects on humans, yeah, I'm, I'm convinced that herbicides, pesticides are bad for us. But people should understand how hard it is to prove that. First, we live on Earth. If we wanted to do a randomized trial where diets were contaminated with herbicides and pesticides compared to diets that were completely free of contamination, we would need another planet because we've done enough damage down here that everything is somewhat contaminated. So we would need a pristine planet that had not been abused by humans. We'd have to source food there and we can compare pristine diets from planet A to what goes on down here on Earth. We don't have another planet to play with. So that study has not been done. So what, what you're left with is trying to piece together the associations between residual traces of chemicals in food that's not even supposed to be there, it's supposed to wash off, and long-term, often fairly subtle health effects, which may even reverberate through generations, like, for example, autism, which may show up you know, via a generational exposure and epigenetic effects. It's very very challenging, very subtle. So the best we have is circumstantial evidence that, you know, these chemicals appear in certain models, in cell culture studies, in, in animal models to exert certain effects. Humans, we know, are potentially being exposed to trace amounts of these chemicals directly. Putting these pieces together, we surmise that there may be adverse human health effects. And and by the way, and I'm sure the two of you are, are more up on this than I, but I think some of the strongest arguments have to do with brain health and, and cognitive development and, and neuropsychology. And I think that and behavioral issues in kids, ADHD and, and uh, autism spectrum disorder. So I, I think that's all very important. We, we can't say for sure. But there's something in public health called the precautionary principle, which basically says if you perceive potential danger in one direction and greater potential safety in the other direction, Get everybody you can to move in the direction of probable greater safety, even if you're not sure. So I would argue pinning down the specific human toxic effects of conventionally produced produce, for example, really, really tough to do. Um, but a lot of circumstantial evidence to say bad for the planet, bad for other species. It makes sense. It wouldn't be too good for us. We know about endocrine disruptors. Best to avoid it. So as many of us who have the resources to support organic farming do, but those of you who don't, and, and that's most of the world, right? You know, until those of us who can support it enough so it becomes the economic default, the way farming is done, until that happens, between here and there, most of the world is mostly only going to have access to conventionally grown produce. And still, the net effect of eating more produce is benefit, not harm. So focus on yeah. moving in that direction. Don't make perfect the enemy of good. But let's let's wage this war on two fronts. Let's fight for more intake of produce overall. And all of us who can support organic farming, let's do because I think it simply makes better sense. Mm. Absolutely. Beautifully stated as always. Beautiful. Beautiful. You know, we could talk to you for days. You're, you're basically <laughs> a walking encyclopedia, um, but I'm being, I'll be respectful of your time. And I can't thank you enough for spending so much time with us and our audience is enjoying each and every word. Uh, thank you for your books. Thank you for your knowledge. And I know I'm very sure that we're going to speak again very soon. Hopefully if you have time. 
and we'll definitely get to and, that. I, and 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 cook it eats yes, yes. Cook it so eats. Let's cook it eats. <laughs> pleasure being with you thanks so much for having me thank you so thank much you. dr katz thank you everyone for joining and we will see you soon